Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Sharon Lieber. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by Vice President and Principal Analyst Jeff Pollard to discuss the future of the CISO role. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Just a quick note before we dive in, if you find this conversation with Jeff today interesting, be sure to check out our upcoming Security and Risk Global virtual event, where Jeff will be presenting a keynote session on the future of the CISO. To learn more, visit forcom security20. That's forrcom security20. So can you just maybe give us a state of the state? where we are today with this role, um, and we can talk about the future. Yeah, absolutely. So when you think about the CISO role, what's interesting about it is that it's a relatively new executive role. It hasn't been around that long. Uh, Most of the history kind of attributes it to beginning in sort of the mid-90s era, uh, where the chief information security officer was kind of born as a concept. And naturally, because of that, what's really happened is that it's gone through a number of changes, a number of evolutions. And in most recent years, a lot of that evolution has been towards what I almost call kind of the CISO becoming an air quotes real member of the executive team, where in in years prior to that, CISOs were often kind of proxied from the board, proxied from other C-level leaders, uh, often within the IT organization, sometimes not even reporting to the CIO, but actually reporting underneath that. And with all of the data breaches, with privacy concerns, with attacks growing, et cetera, what we've really seen is kind of an um, an uplifting of the CISO role to become someone that's uh, much more sort of necessary from a corporate perspective and overall strategy, protecting employee data, protecting customer data, um, you know, ensuring to third parties that things are protected. So it's really forced that role to kind of up level, but that's also meant the CISO skill sets that are important or were once important have also needed to change as a result. And Jeff, is this the same, would you say, across industries or even geographies? Maybe that's another way to look at it. Are there specific areas where if you look at an organization and the CISO doesn't exist or isn't truly an executive sitting at that table, that you would be more worried about that than in others. So that's a that's a phenomenal point. Uh, we're currently in the process of doing some uh, updating some research on CISO career paths. So kind of looking at where CISOs are, you know, where they came from, where they went to, and one of the things that we did with that is we kind of broke it out by vertical and 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 region. And one of the things that is is very clear is that financial services as a vertical has you know has really had the longest history of having a CISO. In fact, that that first CISO in 1995 or so was in a financial services organization. And so in general, they've been a little bit of the tip of the spear, obviously heavily regulated, a lot of third-party concerns, and that's also where a lot of money is, right? And that's where attackers go. So we've definitely seen a lot of maturity in that role from a financial services perspective. I think the area that's most concerning from a CISO perspective in terms of having the role and having the position where it doesn't often show up enough is in tech companies, especially early stage tech companies where they're working with a lot of third parties. They have a lot of data. In fact, arguably the data is the most valuable part of that particular company. They're harvesting a lot of information. They're, you know, 
sharing it or selling it to data brokers. They're active participants in the data economy. And so seeing tech companies of a certain size in particular not have a CISO role, especially given all of the information that they're dealing with, that's where it gets most concerning. So a lot of other verticals have kind of moved in that direction where they generally have one, financial services, pharmaceuticals, healthcare, manufacturing, which has been a bit of a um, a recent trend in manufacturing where they've really sort of... Uh, cultivated CISOs as a talent pool because they're making a lot of consumer-facing technologies, products, and services. So manufacturing came to the game a little bit later than others, but technology companies and software companies right now are probably the ones where it's most concerning, especially when they're consumer-facing, where they just they don't have security leaders uh, or they wait until they're big enough to have one and then something happens. And there's a bunch of examples of that, including recent ones where they didn't have a CISO, didn't necessarily have someone in charge of security, suddenly highly visible things happen, and they name one very shortly after. And that's one that's hard to walk back from, right? You don't get a you don't get a second chance to avoid um, a big blunder like that. Yeah, I was going to ask too, was how much of this sort of acceleration or, you know, putting them at the C-suite is reactive versus proactive, knowing the importance of that role? No, this is an excellent point. And, and here's why it's important, because we do definitely find that there is a performative aspect to some CISO roles, right? It's it's CISO theater. In fact, one of the things that we caution in our six types of CISOs is to make sure that you aren't that, that you aren't being hired um, to eventually become a scapegoat, because that, that used to happen. It's not as common now, thankfully. But it was one of those things where, you know, it's sort of the the statement and um, some, some colleagues of ours that came before for uh, Rick Holland and John Kindervog, uh, security and risk alumni, uh, once wrote a blog called kind of Mean Time Before CEO Apology um, after a data breach, right? And it was one of those things where, uh, we, you know, we, we care quite a bit about the uh, personal information about our customers, um, despite all evidence to the contrary, uh, right? Despite the fact that we didn't do as much as we could have before that. And, and so that was a metric they sort of invented a little bit tongue in cheek, but you're right. And one of the things that we caution CISOs as they think about their type is that they avoid becoming that performative uh, CISO, that CISO in theater only, right? Or CISO in name only, where you're only there as part of this public facing reaction or this kind of reaction actionary process. And instead, you actually have the ability to influence things and do things. Um, so that's definitely a part of it. At the same time, that can be a legitimate motivator to bring in a to bring in a security leader or to redefine the role of the of the senior security leader in your environment if you did suffer from this because obviously something that's highly public and visible you suddenly have shareholders that are putting pressure on you you have third parties that are putting pressure on you and one of the things that we consistently remind people about on the security and risk team is that breaches last a long time like you might think that it's just the headline that you have to deal with in the incident response process, which is long, but the litigation that ensues after that takes forever. I mean, when you look at something like the highly publicized breach of Target, which was you know now all the way back in you know 20, the sort of mid 2000s or whatever, and 2020 has been a long year, so maybe it was a little bit longer than that. But when you go back to Target, what you find is that um, you know they were settling some of those aspects of the breach with um, state attorneys. General in 2018. 
So that was, you know, 36, 48, you know, 60 months after some of the breach activity ended that you're suddenly, you know, finally selling the litigation. Um, so, you know, these things have a really long memory and they happen at the worst time. And that's where having a CISO that can get you out ahead of it is so important, provided you give them the right power and it's the right type and the right role. You put out research earlier this year. I think it was earlier this year. Again, been a long year. Been a long year. <laughs> um, stating that every CISO is basically a transformational CISO. I'm assuming you're sort of getting at some of that there, but can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by transformational CISO? Yeah. So the transformational CISO is is one of the roles that's, or one of the types, I should say, that's most interesting. And it's and, and the pandemic and the response to the pandemic has really been a forcing factor for transformational CISOs, right? It's really forced other types to embrace some of the aspects of transformational. Uh, the main thing I would say about a transformational security leader is that they are very comfortable not just building out a security program, but reinventing a security program, really changing it from what it was to what it needs to be. And that's one of those things that takes a really long time. It's not a one year, two year, or even three year thing. It's often a security leader that's very comfortable with looking at four to five years of change that's going to be required to reinvent that. It means embracing and adopting different working styles. But most importantly, one of the biggest things that we find with transformational CISOs is that they are by far the most tolerant of change of any CISO type out there, right? We all deal with change and we all deal with it in various ways, but transformational CISOs are energized by change, right? They're energized by disruption to the way that their firm works or to their firm's business model. And transformational CISOs are okay with that. And they really lean into it and they enjoy it and they thrive in it. They're not overwhelmed by it. They're not stressed out by it. They're not unhappy with it. And the the mass shift, especially towards work from home during the pandemic, was a forcing factor to make a lot of CISOs become transformational because these might have been security leaders before that said, well, we have a certain percentage that works from home and here are risk related to that and we may not want to expand it. And then all of a sudden what happens is, you know, we're walking into their office and saying, everyone's working from home. Can your team make that happen? And they had to do it. And so it it really taught a lot of security leaders that might have been one of the other types of what transformational could be like. And also for many of them, clued them in and maybe made them think, oh, well, you know what? I did really enjoy that. Like maybe this is a type I should I should consider becoming in the future. How do I get from here to there? Uh, so in some ways it was the challenge of doing that, right? The premise of, you know, kind of necessity being the mother of invention or constraints leading to innovation. We definitely saw that across the CISO types as well. So Jeff, maybe you could just tell us this year in particular, what, what has set the transformational CISO apart? One of the things we definitely found in the research was that it's those CISOs that understand that their market has been disrupted and they're totally comfortable putting together that four to five year plan, right? When you think about digital transformation and the ambiguity around that term, what I often explain to to CISOs about that is this is the fact that the revenue streams within your organization are changing. Like the ways that you make money have now shifted. You're going to have new revenue streams, new ways to make money. Maybe, you know, legacy business models become recurring business models or something else. And the transformational CISO has to be willing and able to secure 
that transformation for the business as well as adapt the security program to it. And for some CISOs, that's just not what they enjoy. That's not what they thrive in. And that's where I look at, you know, what companies out there have changed business models or are undergoing that and which ones have embraced it and which ones have been able to keep their security posture and their security program in alignment with that. That's where you find your transformational CISOs. Okay, we're in a situation where we have all these different types of CISOs, but really the one that's going to work in a situation like we just talked about is a transformational CISO. So they all got pushed into trying to fit that bill. I assume that means that there probably were some failures uh, in that transition. Some of them just can't be that kind of CISO. Do we have examples of that? Or, Or how big of an impact is that? I mean, are there just companies that are at a higher level of exposure right now because their CISOs couldn't make that transition. Yeah, I mean, there definitely are, right? And and they obviously don't brag about it when that failure happens. <laughs> right. But, you know, what we've seen is that one, sometimes it's out of the, the CISO's control, right? There are some industries that have been so much more hurt by the pandemic and pandemic response that, you know, they're very much looking at their business and saying, you know, we've got to get rid of a lot of this. And that's the only way we're going to survive. And because of that, you know, it, it doesn't matter how good the CISO was or how quickly they were able to shift in that transformational type. They just ultimately, it's kind of out of their control given their vertical. But I, I think that it's easy to identify to a certain extent when companies have struggled with this because, you know, if work from home has been a disaster for you, uh, then the, the CISO is probably a part of that, right? Um, just like IT is probably a part of that. If you've had, you know, sort of massive product security failures as well, that's another area where product security is such a nebulous issue for a lot of security leaders because they're often not involved in it and they should be. What we found, and I, I, I lead some of our product security research, what we found is that transformational security leaders are also the most adept at securing customer facing products and services, the things that make money for you. So they're often much more successful at making sure that the things that you sell that generate revenue for you are also secure. And when you see huge product security failures, it's often because either they didn't have a CISO or that CISO wasn't plugged into the product process, the product management process. And that's also an indicator sometimes that they need to cultivate some of those transformational skills or that company, if they think about making a change, needs to find a transformational CISO type. And we call that CISO company fit, right? We kind of borrow from product market fit. CISO company fit is every bit as important. If you're not in a position to transform, a transformational leader is going to be unhappy. If you, if you are in a place to transform and you have a, a steady state security leader, they're probably not going to thrive. So we've obviously just chatted a lot about the transformational CISO and, and the value of that that type. But what are what are the other types, Jeff? Yeah, so transformational CISO, we spend a little time on. One that's uh, unfortunately all too common is post-breach CISO. So the security leaders that are very comfortable coming in and um, dealing with the aftermath, or or in some cases during a major um, a major breach scenario, uh, which I'm I'm often most passionate about. I've got some incident response ex- expertise in my background, and so um, I, I sort of empathize and sympathize with the post-breach CISOs out there because they have a lot of a lot of work to do. The tactical and operational expert CISO, right? The folks that are really good at, at technology and are sort of technologists in their background and, and 
you know, taking over kind of a security program that's focused on that. The compliance and risk gurus that generally live, especially in highly regulated industries or industries with a lot of third party concerns, uh, very common, often sort of with an audit background as well. Steady state CISOs, which are the folks that are great at keeping a program on track and running. Um, these are the CISOs that don't need to transform. The company hasn't had a breach and they're they're perfect in industries that are, you know, maybe a little bit more distanced from kind of a digital transformation or distanced from some of those those big changes that are occurring broadly. Uh, th so they're terrific from that perspective. And also, you know, companies that just need things to kind of settle down, right? Maybe they've been through a period of turbulence. In fact, we often see some of these types handing off to others after a few years. And then finally, the one that's becoming more and more prevalent now, which is the customer facing evangelist. So that's really the security leader that spends a good solid amount of their time talking about the security enhancements and capabilities of of their particular company and and this is one where i'll identify one of them out there but when you look at microsoft as an example um you know brett at microsoft is very much a customer facing evangelist CISO. he's consistently giving talks and webinars and discussions now about security features and capabilities that microsoft has built that isn't something that he was doing you know a decade ago there but it is something that he does you know often now pretty much weekly at this point. So that's kind of an example of the six types and, and how they break down. And do we expect, I, based on that last comment, I would expect that we're going to see at, or at least hope to see more of those customer facing CISOs. We know trust is becoming such a core component of brand identity and value. I may be playing into a stereotype here, so I'm going to do so cautiously. But CISO and publicly facing person evangelists don't always kind of go hand in hand. Shortage of people like that out there? Or do you think that they're rapidly becoming that and, and up to the challenge to take on that new role? I think shortage is not at all um, an inaccurate descriptor of the situation. You know, when when you look at a lot of CISOs, you're absolutely right. When you think about the sort of career trajectory or growth path, what, what we find, and, and we found this in some of our career path research, is that most security leaders, when they transition into those first management roles, they are a technologist at heart and at core. That's where they come from. Uh, they don't have a background in things that are more customer facing or more public facing. They don't have a consulting background. They don't have a sales sales background, they don't have a marketing background, et cetera. So it is very much a skill set that they have to develop as a security leader on their track. And we often find that the customer facing evangelist, you know, if if you're in your first CISO role ever, you may not be ready for that. You might be that that steady state or or operational and tactical expert, and you've got to grow into that a little bit. Um, that definitely happens. So I, I don't think you're wrong. But what we are seeing to your point, especially with the importance of trust and and ethics and privacy becoming so important in terms of how people buy things, both not just from a B2B perspective, but also a B2C perspective that, you know, CISOs are rapidly having to become that customer facing evangelist. And some people are great at that out of the gate and other people have to develop that as a skill set. But it is something that you can develop, even if it's maybe never something that you enjoy, but hopefully you do enjoy it because to your point, it is one of those that is rapidly growing in terms of importance and is probably the type that's growing the most out there. What One of the things that's 
interesting about it is that when we talk to a lot of security leaders, what they're most interested in becoming is transformational from sort of a developmental perspective. What I often caution them or at least remind them of is, look, customer facing evangelist is also awesome too. Um, so consider that, right? Don't just think that transformational is the best because none of these types are inherently bad or good necessarily, but customer facing evangelist is where you have a lot of opportunity to grow and you can build a really thriving career going from one company to the next being exactly that type of leader. Is there an optimal blend of these types? So that's been the most interesting sort of critique of the research mm. so far. I think that it's true that every security leader needs a little bit of this, right? Every security leader is going to deal with compliance. Doesn't mean they're a guru, right? right. It just means that they, that they have it. Every security leader is probably going to deal with some amount of customer-facing evangelism, maybe not as much, but they're going to have to be in front of clients at some point. So there is a little bit of a mix, but the problem with that sort of optimal mix or with that ideal CISO that we call sort of the Da Vinci fallacy is that what we hear is that, oh, well, a CISO needs to be all of these. And I'm like, right. And every basketball player needs to be LeBron James, right? And every painter needs to be Picasso. And, and you know, every quarterback needs to be Tom Brady. Um, and that's not just me appealing to the, to, to the Boston crowd at Forrester. Um, but, you know, the thing is, like, the reason why we remember those names, like the reason why there's a Michael Jordan or a Kobe Bryant or a LeBron James is because there was one of them at the time. Like there aren't two of them or three of them. So sure, it would be great if everyone that was interested in art was also interested in architecture and anatomy and innovation and everyone could be Da Vinci, but most CISOs aren't that. They're just trying to, to get through the day. So I don't want to tell them that they need to be a Renaissance person or a polymath to do that. Instead, I, I want to say, look, you have to do a little bit of all this, but figure out your type and find a way to thrive. And what's interesting is it's sort of the opposite of the advice that we give CEOs. When you look at sort of CEO advice, it's pick the best people and surround yourself with them and empower them. But then when we go to CISOs, we say, well, you need to be great at all these. And it's like, well, why are we telling that person that they need to find the best people and empower them? But then we're telling this other role that they need to be great at everything. Like, does, like that, that isn't clear to me sort of why that makes sense. And the problem with this perspective, especially for that sort of CISO is, and Da Vinci fallacy is that it comes from within security. That, that, that's my biggest issue. Like this isn't, uh, you know, like recruiting firms saying it or, you know, some other, some other sort of folks like lobbing things over the fence. It's, it's literally what we shoot at ourselves. We, it's a self-inflicted wound because it's security professionals saying that a CISO needs to be great at all those things. And it's like, why are we doing this to ourselves? Are we not stressed out enough? Uh, like, don't we have enough things to do that we don't need to suddenly criticize this? So um, it, it is valid that all of these things are going to encompass a, a, something of what you do every day. But the real element here is figuring out which of these do you thrive in, which of them energize you the most that you want to do every day. And that's the type that you sort of align yourself with and the company that needs that type or the companies you want to find your place. That's where you want to be. And if you grow from one to another, that's okay too. I, I think to your point about the CEO, this reminds me of, of so many conversations about the role of the CIO too, right? When digital came along, it's like, oh, now you have to be this innovator, but you have to keep the lights on and you have to be this technologist. No, you have to be a business person. And then none of that is possible. And the, you know, our advice at Forrester obviously has shifted to you pick your, your thing and you build your team. And that's, and, and that can work in a, in a world where you have a large staff. Um, I'm wondering, what are the trends in the security teams in terms of size? I mean, is there a lot of investment happening 
And therefore, there is opportunity to surround yourself with strong leaders that may be a compliment. Or is that just not even a possibility because so many of them haven't risen up to the right level in the organization yet? Yeah, so we're 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 in this amazing industry, and this is something that Joseph Blankenship, Chase Cunningham, and I looked at a couple of years ago, where security is growing so rapidly and has been. And so we alluded to the fact that we had a staffing shortage, except almost every thread that I read, whether it's on Reddit, Twitter, or LinkedIn, is about how to break into the industry. So I haven't quite figured out how we have this massive staffing shortage if everyone needs to figure out how to break into the industry, like something isn't right. And part of the key there is that the staffing shortage is also largely self-inflicted. Frankly, a lot of security leaders don't do a phenomenal job of hiring. And and so it makes it seem like they have a a larger staffing shortage. Year over year, security budgets have been going up. That was certainly true pre-pandemic. Post-pandemic, there will be some disruption to that. I think that security leaders are going to keep asking for a lot of budget. They're not going to get nearly what they asked for before. And most of the time, what we saw here at Forrester when we talked to um, a senior security leader is that They got everything that they needed. They generally didn't get everything they wanted, but they didn't have time for everything they wanted anyway. So budgets, they they were generally getting about what they what they needed. Um, They just weren't necessarily getting the the sort of nice to haves, but they were getting all their have to haves. And that included headcount, that included technology and and infrastructure, et cetera. I think that we're going to have some pressure on that from a pandemic perspective, especially in verticals most hit by it. And we're going to see some cuts there, but we'll springboard out of this. And I think we'll see security continue to grow because attackers are not taking time off. Third parties aren't saying that you can be less secure if you want to work with them. Uh, So there was a lot of opportunity for security leaders to find that, but it wasn't always easy. Let me give you some examples of of what I did find some security leaders doing. It was interesting. So I, I lead our research on security metrics and I'm hyper passionate about it and I don't want anyone to judge me for it. Um, so, and one of the things I, I found in recent years is that some security leaders were going out and bringing people into the team that had uh, marketing analytics backgrounds, um, account management backgrounds. And they were saying, look, you're in charge of our metrics program now. Tell me what you need. I want you to build it or work with the data science team or work with our other teams to build it. And then I want you to create the content and I want you to create the talk track and I want you to coach me on delivering that at a board level, but I want you to be our resource that's going to deliver it at a business level. Sometimes the roles were BSO, business information security officer. Sometimes it had a different title, but I saw this in financial services and insurance a lot where they would hire this role. And in this scenario, that role was primarily designed to be sort of the business focused person. So maybe the CISO didn't feel comfortable with it or someone on the team becomes the, the customer facing evangelist that handles a lot of the product security activity because a CISO may not be as comfortable. And to be honest, compliance and risk gurus have kind of always existed in security because we needed them. Uh, so, so that's always been there. But yeah, you're absolutely right. As teams were growing larger and security budgets were going up, they had the opportunity to add some of these strengths on the team. And that could help complement some of their own weaknesses and also act as a talent development mechanism for them where that person's probably a future security leader themselves. So you can help them get where they need to be. So maybe to shift actually completely to the other end of the spectrum, I find it super fascinating that you have like dedicated research on exit plans for CISOs. So can you talk a little bit about that? Why why is it so important for CISOs? Is it more important than other roles? Um, And then what are those exit plans? 
Yeah. So as we were as we were looking at the at the research, one of the things we thought about is, you know, is CISO a terminal role? Um, and I don't mean that in terms of doom, right? So what I mean by that is, you know, is this the last job? Is this the last title that you have until you retire? And do you need to look at it that way? And what we found in that is that it absolutely doesn't have to be, first of all. Um, it certainly can be, but it doesn't have to be. And so we started looking at, okay, well, what can CISOs go and do, right? Obviously, there are, you know, becoming the sort of expert, right, or the person giving speeches and talking about security leadership and and mentoring. But one of the other things that's happened, and it's something that I actually expect to see more in the next couple of years as we come out of the pandemic, is that a lot of security leaders that ran enterprise security programs were building their own technologies to solve their own problems. There, there weren't tools available in the commercial market that solved what they needed, so they made their own. And then, you know, after having that, they would suddenly kind of realize, well, wait, I could commercialize that and I could be the CEO of that company. It's not for everyone, but it can certainly work. And so we looked at it and said, well, what about that, right? What about a, a, a CISO as a future CEO to take that thing that you built for your own company that solved your problem? Well, if it's your problem, it's probably 20 or 50 or a thousand other people's problems. So commercializing that. So we've seen a number of CISOs as founders where they become um, CEOs eventually. So that's one. And we've seen a recent trend where some former CISOs have become CIOs. Yeah, in fact, there's a, a pharmaceutical company that made a hire like that just in the last few months where uh, she had been a, a, a CISO and is now a CIO. And that's really interesting, right? Because the plurality of CISOs report to CIOs. There's some okay things about that. And there are some really bad things about it that can happen too, but it works. But now we're seeing some CISOs, you know, assume the mantle of, of their, of their, either their former boss or maybe go to another company and, you know, become a CIO. And, and of course, for some, there's retirement, right? Maybe it was just too much and they do something else. So that's certainly valid. But yeah, we really wanted to explain to folks interested in eventually becoming a security leader or those security leaders themselves, like this is not it. There are other things you can do and you don't just have to wait for, you know, becoming a scapegoat or retirement to figure out what's next. You've got some other options. And that's been one of the areas where we've had a lot of conversations with security leaders that are on their third role. And they're starting to say, well, like, well, I, I've done this. I've climbed this mountain. What else can I do? And that's where you look at, well, what about a board of directors position where you can be the security resource for that board of directors? What about starting something if you're interested in that? What about writing a book about your experiences? All of those things are valid. And maybe it's all of the above. But the big thing is to communicate is that this isn't it. There are some other things that you can do that are really interesting out there. So, Jeff, We've gone through a ton of content here, but at the end of the day, what is your advice to the security leader who's perhaps frustrated or, or not satisfied in their current role or where they think their role is heading? So I'll, I'll give a lot of credit to Janan Budge and, and Paul Mackay, who I worked on with the CISO types research, and in particular, Janan, who's very passionate about CISO mental health. And this is one of the things that we've really, really dug deep on. If you are unhappy as a CISO, if you're angst-ridden, if you're frustrated with the direction of your company, you may be aligned poorly. The type that you are just may not be the type that your company needs. So the first thing that I would say is if you're suffering from that burnout or that angst, one, is it burnout, right? Is it an actual thing that you need to solve? Because that's a separate issue. This report certainly isn't going to fix that. But 
if if it's just frustration or angst with the situation that you're in, you know, really sit down and and look at the six types, look at the company and where you are and figure out, is it time for you to move on? Uh, one of the things I often bring up here is take that post-breach CISO. That's a frenetic gig. I mean, that's hard. Like you're dealing with a company that's now suffering from one of the biggest things that it's dealt with. And for example, there, there's one um, in the Atlanta, Georgia area. When you, when you sort of look at his resume and background, he's been in a lot of really large breached companies you know at some point he may get tired of that and and you know it, it may be time to become a different type or he may always thrive on that and, and the question's out there for him right now to be honest he doesn't know which one he's going to be in the future uh but he's great at it and that's what he's done and so when that program gets to a steady state that he's in now that might be boring Honestly, like given what he's done, that that's probably not going to be that exciting. So if you're in that situation where you're not fulfilled, you don't feel like you can be creative or you feel like you're not enjoying the challenges thrown at you, really investigate the CISO company fit and figure out if you're at the right place. And if you're not, you know, try to find an opportunity that more aligns with what you want to do every day. Um, that'd be the biggest advice I have is that if you're just frustrated by it, make sure that you're not in the wrong place at the wrong time and try to investigate CISO company fit and allow yourself to, to move on into the right situation that you're going to be more successful and energized by. Thanks for joining us today, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.